If I have not met you yet, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church. We are in a series on 1 Peter. So would you open up your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. Also, um, we are launching again in January our Q&A podcast. It's going to be on both YouTube as well as on our podcast uh, app. And so if you have questions about this sermon, I have a hunch this is going to be one of those messages that you're going to have a lot of questions. You can go to our Village Church website, vcob.org, go to the Q&A page. You can submit questions there. You can write down your questions on a sheet of paper, turn them in. You can text them to me or any of our staff. We'll all get them. But I do have a hunch that this will be one of those subjects that you are going to leave with a lot of questions, which is great. And if you don't know what we're talking about, I'm going to hold you in suspense for just another minute. All right, First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, in creation, God designed three very good and life-giving institutions that are a gift to humanity. And here are the three. Number one is government. It has been graciously designed by God and given to us to restrain uh, our sinful behavior. Uh, without government, chaos would be everywhere. Uh, number two is religion, graciously designed by God to show us a right pathway to reach him and to meet him and to know him personally through faith in Jesus Christ. And number three is the family, uh, designed by God to give us an experiential picture of the gospel, of the love of the Trinity, the love of God for humanity and marriage and parenthood. Now here's what the audience of First Peter is trying to deal with. They are living in a world where the sin of mankind has made a train wreck of all three of these. Does this remind you of like your life today? I mean, do you see how sin has made a train wreck of government, of religion, and the family? It's, let's just talk about Roman government for a minute. I want to bring you into the world of the audience of First Peter. Uh, at this time, Nero had complete and control, total control. Nero had overstepped his boundaries. He had deemed himself God. Nero is beginning to persecute non-compliant religious groups, most notably is going to be Jews and Christians who would not bend the knee to Nero, to Nero as God. Corruption could be found in every corner of the empire, everywhere. Uh, bribery, rebellions, etc., you name it. Uh, it's a very different world than probably what we experience here. Let's talk about Roman religion for a moment. The priests and the priestesses were uh, imitating the character of their gods, who were, by the way, nothing more than demons masquerading. That's all Roman gods ever were. And so they're becoming more like them, and they were deeply sexual, coordinating and sanctioning sexual immorality, orgies, substance abuse, all in the name of helping people connect to their god. The priests were deeply connected to the state. They used false religion to get very rich and powerful. Money flowed in and out of the temple temple systems and structures. It was a very, very corrupt organization, if you will. Let's talk about the Roman family just for a moment and see how sin has corrupted that, particularly the urban Roman family, closer to the urban centers, like Rome itself, uh, where so many of Peter's audience actually came from. Roman women were highly, often highly promiscuous, engaging in gross sexual immorality. Prostitution was semi-normal there. Uh, There was over-the-top, overcompensating uh, adornment and a constant competition of women competing against other women to be more noticed and liked. Roman men lived in a hyper-machismo world uh, where... Um, child, homosexual, and heterosexual prostitution was somewhat normalized. 
They engage in said cult orgies, prone to more violence than most of the men that you would experience, at least in American culture. Roman husbands were all over the board, but very sexually promiscuous with a low view of women and often very harsh toward the women in their home. Roman wives, on the other hand, are often treated lowly by Roman husbands, often used sexually with little to no recourse. There was nowhere for them to go. Expected to let their husbands see prostitutes. I could go on. Here's one of the questions that our original audience is dealing with. How do I honorably live in a good institution that man has so profoundly messed up? Now, even as we just read all of this, I want to just take a moment. You've probably heard me do this like every week we've been in First Peter. Are you not so grateful for the country we live in? Uh, it's hard to bribe a police, police officer, right? Um, our government has its issues, don't get me wrong, but this place has been built by and large on a Judeo-Christian ethic. There is a moral framework that you do not find in the vast majority of countries in this world. It is an amazing, amazing country where the family unit still does have value. Despite what's happening to attack it, there is still a high value on that. And though there is false religion all over the place, we are sitting here free to proclaim Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, truly God, truly man, king of the universe, king of kings. We have the freedom to proclaim that. Like, we have an amazing context. And and I just want you to remember, week in, week out, do not lose your gratitude. Do not lose your gratitude for where we are, because there are people right now, believers, who are in way, 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 way worse Uh, So let's be grateful for that. But how do I honorably live in a good institution that man has so profoundly messed up? And so last week, Peter gave us a word. This word is a controversial word to his audience, not just to us nowadays, but it's a word that was really important to him. It's a word that's really important to Paul. And it is a word that defined so much of Jesus's life. And the word we shared with you was submission. (sighs) You'll be fine. Comes from a Greek word. Hupotasso, which is a connection of two words, hupo, which means under, and tasso, which means commands or directives. And in the Bible, here's how the Bible uses this term. Submission is willingly yielding to another's authority or will. It is willingly yielding to another's authority or will. Last week, we saw what that meant with relation to the government, with masters, with bosses. And now today, we're going to laser beam focus on Marriage. So open up your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. What I want to do first, I want to show you the big picture flow of this text. And I think you're going to see a theme. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13, be hupotasso, subject, deference, deferential, submissive, for the Lord's sake to every human, human institution. Chapter 2, verse 15, for this, hupotasso, is the will of God. Chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be Hupatasso to your masters. Chapter 2, verse 21. For to this, Hupatasso, you have been called. Do you see a theme? Chapter 3, verse 1. This is where we're going to start today. Likewise, wise be Hupatasso to your husbands. Chapter 3, verse 5. Hupatasso to their own husbands. Chapter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands and implied Hupatasso to your wives. Do you see like a theme coming through here, right? It doesn't matter who you are, male, female, where you're at, the expectation of Peter to the people of God is hupotasso in every area of your life will be one of the defining marks of a follower of Jesus. Whatever this submission or deference or subjection is, it is of utmost importance and highest value to Peter, to Paul, 
and ultimately to Jesus. And so here's our, here's our job today. Our job is to figure this word out, figure out what it means, and then figure out how we can live this out. Now, can we just have a candid conversation for a moment? Whenever a pastor, particularly a male pastor, gets up and talks about wives submit to your husbands, people get all antsy, I just don't think it should be so. Um, your objective is to figure out whether or not I'm being faithful to God's word. I don't care if it's a child, a man, or a woman. If we are proclaiming God's word, that's the greatest concern. Now, I want to just say I know this is a very sensitive subject. And so what we have committed to doing, do from the pulpit is to lean into really difficult, sensitive subjects so that we can bring clarity from God's word. So as they come up, we just want to lean into them. We want to have hard conversations. We want to engage these things. We're not afraid of them. Uh, I'm not afraid of you agreeing with me or disagreeing with me. In fact, I have a lot of fun conversations after hard sermons like this, and I invite those as long as you're nice and kind. This is really a culturally offensive subject. Peter does not take a popular view on submission, whether you're a man or a woman. And so here's kind of his big picture thing. Peter just doesn't care what Americans think of what he's writing at all. And so we shouldn't be surprised when Americans or people from different cultures read Peter or Paul or Christ and they're like, huh, I don't, I don't like that. I'm deeply offended. Well, okay, but it doesn't mean we don't lean into it and it doesn't mean we don't talk about it and teach on it. Um, preachers have massively abused the subject which makes many of you reticent to even listen. And I, and I understand that. And it's really sad, and that's true. Um, but preachers have also buckled in fear. Uh, preachers are often prone, as everyone is, to being people pleasers. It's not uncommon that you'll hear people preach through First Peter, and they will literally skip this entire section of Scripture because they're afraid of what it actually is going to imply. Most preachers that I know, they just want to be faithful to God's word. That's my goal this morning. Don't really want to offend you. I don't really like fighting with people. I want to serve you. I want you to see uh, the word of God. I want you to understand it. I want you to apply it. Um, Some of you have the right interpretation of this text. And your application is horrendously sinful. And what's going to happen is that the Word of God and the Spirit of God are going to converge together in your heart and bring you deep conviction. And my prayer is that the byproduct of this is repentance. Some of you have never, ever, ever heard anything on this subject. You are a blank slate. So all you jaded people who have been hurt, do not ruin the Word of God for people who are new to this. Sound good? Right? Whatever the Word of God says, it is amazing. And just because people do dumb things with it doesn't mean it doesn't stand on its own and is not True. So here's what I want to do. I want all of us to commit to answering one singular question this morning. Here it is. What does Peter think submission looks like? If you're going to fight over something, don't fight over anything I said. Fight over this. What does Peter think submission looks like? And if you're going to have an answer, open up the Bible, look in the text, root it in the text, because that's where we're going to use, what we're going to use as our source of authority. All right. First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Village, are you ready? Yes. Ladies, are you ready? (laughs) Good, I love that. There we go. Whatever the word says, we want it. All right, chapter three, verse one. Likewise, wives, be hupotasso to your husbands. Now, likewise is bringing together all of the former hupotassos, be subject, be submissive, uh, before this in chapter two, saying, listen, it doesn't matter who you are, every follower of Christ is called to be in subjection, submission, deferential, to someone, government, to the believers, uh, believers in Jesus Christ, to people in your family. Be hupotasso to your husbands. I want to know the answer to two questions. The first question is why? 
And then my second question is, okay, I can buy be subjective or be submissive, but what I really want to know is, what does this actually look like on the ground? Like, show me, show me how this actually plays itself out day in and day out. Now, I have to make one final disclaimer here as we go into this. Um, one of the aspects of submission that Peter doesn't really dive into is he doesn't really dive into the authority structure of the home. Um, and so we see an authority structure in the Godhead. We, th- we see authority structures in the home. Um, and so he just really doesn't deal with this a ton. Um, so when we're in counseling with people, um, sometimes we'll talk about the authority structure of a home. Um, what he's going to talk about is this principle of mutual submission. Uh, husbands, subject yourselves to your wives. Wives, subject yourselves to your husbands. Now, we still believe the authority structure of the home is real and true, but you're welcome. I'm not going to spend the next 45 minutes going through that because it's not as primary emphasis. It informs this, but it's not as primary thing. This is primarily a how-to on how to mutually subject to one another in a very specific context that we're going to draw out here in just a moment. All right, why? Why submit to your husband? Look at verse one, it goes on. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one. They may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Why? Why should I submit to my husband? Let me tell you to win your husband. I'm going to give you three different ways that Peter is going to actually help us see how we can win our husbands. And here's the first, to win your husbands to God. Can I just share with you the primary context that Peter's dealing with? He's talking primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to wives, to women who've become Christians, but their husbands have yet to trust in Jesus. And what these women want is good and noble and right. They want their husband to meet Jesus. They want him to trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins and for salvation, and they are desperate. They're looking at their children, and they're wanting their mom and their dad to be preaching the same things about Jesus. Instead, the husband is worshiping false gods and, and, and is living a lifestyle reflecting the nature, the character of those gods. It's because that's what everybody does. We live the life. We reflect the lifestyle of the God we worship. And so these wives are desperate for their husbands to know Jesus. And as we've said a hundred times over, desperate people do dumb things. And so here's what they're doing. They're nagging. They're, they're antagonizing. You have to. You have to come to church with me. You have to trust in Jesus. And I'm telling you that when a husband feels like he can never live up to the expectation of his wife, he pushes her away. And apparently, whatever these women were doing, which we're going to watch this unfold in his advice, was pushing their husbands further and further away from not just coming to church, but wanting to engage Jesus as their Savior. So yes, ladies, if you are married to an unbelieving man, there is something that you can do to make it exponentially more difficult for that unbelieving man to really come face-to-face with Jesus. And they were going to have to deal with a very, very hard question that Peter is implicitly posing to them. Ladies, those of you married to unbelieving men, what do you want more? Your way or your husband's salvation? Because you can't have both right now. Everything Peter is going to tell them is good and right and true, but counter what their flesh wants and how they're used to getting things done. Now, the second uh, kind of person they would mar- be married to would be uh, a man who had trusted in Christ but had backslidden a little bit. They had one foot in the world, one foot in the church. They were in unrepentant sin. And so 
here's the deal. Ladies, do you want to win your husband to righteousness? Nagging, yelling, demanding doesn't actually work. Many of you have tried this for years, and you're like, why doesn't he change? Well, because that method actually pushes him away. In fact, we're going to find as this text goes on, it doesn't just push men away. It pushes women away. It pushes everybody away. It is a counterproductive methodology or strategy for getting people to actually change from the heart. And so these women who are married to, quote, Christian men who were uh, backslidden or living with one foot in the world and one foot in the church, here's the question for them. What do you want more, your way or your husband's repentance? Because apparently there's something that you can do that can make it harder for him to come to a place of repentance. Uh, So the third category would be um, godly Christian women married to godly Christian men, and both of them together wanted to grow and have a marriage that year in, year out was more glorifying to God. And guess what? The same rule applies. That there are some things that you need to avoid and some things that you need to be able to do, but the whole principle of submission is this. It is the means by which a woman wins a man. Now, we're going to watch this unfold. But here's the, here's the hard thing for most women. What do you want more? Your way or to win your husband? And here's what Peter's trying to do. He's trying to throw all the women a bone. I want you to win your husband. I want you to win. I don't care who he is, unbeliever, unrepentant, or really solid, strong man. The advice that Peter is going to give to everybody, it's just true and it's good no matter who you are, what culture you're in, where you live. It's good and it's righteous. I want to share with you a phrase that I think will really help us remember this. The power is in the pattern. A pattern is something that repeats itself. A pattern is a way of doing things. And here's what these women want. I want to see my husband grow and change and become more like Jesus. I want to see my husband trust in Christ. And so Jesus says, all right, then do it this way. And they're like, well, I'm going to do it my way. And he's like, there's not power in that way. The power is in the pattern that I laid out for you. And so he's going to lay out a pattern. He's going to show us how to do this. But the power is in the pattern. And there's just a fair warning to every woman who wants to win a man. If you neglect the pattern, you neglect the power. And if you wonder why your husband is being pushed further and further and further away from you, it's probably because you're not tapping into the power, which is wound up or bound up in the methodology that he gives. Number two, okay, Michael, what does this actually look like? Well, let's go to Peter because he's got some very specific things that he wants to encourage you with. These are really great things. Now, intuitively, ladies, you all know that there is an incredibly efficient strategy and method to win a man's attention. And it is with your body. It's very efficient. It's very effective. It's very quick. And here's what he says in verse three. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting out of golden jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Can we just pause and take something really dumb off the table? Are you allowed to braid your hair, ladies? Are you allowed to wear clothes? <laughs> That's not his point. I hope you can just read in the text. That's not his point. His point is that when your external beauty becomes a higher value than your internal beauty, you're off. Because the lie is that you're going to win him for a life with your external beauty. I'll just give you a fair warning. Uh, Ladies, sexuality wins a man for a moment. Prolonged sexuality that is increasingly creative might win a man for a season. It's cheap fuel. He can't run on it forever. It corrodes him eventually. 
Godly character is an entirely different thing. Godly character is the most strategic way to win a man's heart for life. This is it. You can invest in all your beauty, and don't get me wrong, beauty is good and right, and a beautiful woman is wonderful. I don't want to look like a slob when I leave the house. I got you. But it's not going to win your man's heart for the rest of his life. What will win his heart is who you are. What does this look like? Look at verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of your heart. Apparently the greatest arsenal that you can have to protect your marriage and your husband is godly character, a person of integrity, of beauty on the inside. There is something about that that is deeper. Then he gives some really practical examples. He calls it, he says this, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Whatever gentle and quiet mean, it is imperishable, meaning it never dies, it never fades. It is something you will never regret for the rest of your eternity. What he's about to tell you is going to be counter what you're used to, but it is the pattern. It is the means by which the power to change your husband is actually activated. Gentile, gentile, gentle is in contrast to harsh. How did the men speak to their wives? Harshly, ladies, when your husband is harsh, what is your temptation? To be harsh in in response. How does that go for you? Never well. Someone has to stop the fight. Someone has to stop the pattern. And so here's what he says. You live in a world where these non-Christian men are treating you harshly. They're taking advantage of you. They're not loving you as Christ loved the church. They're using you for your body. And I'm telling you this, the most efficient way to win your husband to the Lord and to repentance is not by playing his game. So here's one of the realities about being a pastor. Um, If I am a jerk to somebody, what it does is it makes them not want to deal with Christians. So if I meet a non-Christian and I'm just really mean to them, they leave and they think pastors are so-and-so blankety-blank. And it makes them not want to go into a church. And if they do, it makes their experience with other pastors more difficult. I know this because I experienced this. Many of you have had terrible experiences with really, really bad pastors. And you meet me, and it takes you years to build an ounce of trust toward me. I mean, I didn't do anything to you, but they did. It's transference. In the same way, these wives are married to men, and this wife is the only Christian they really know. And for, for all they know, this woman represents all of Christianity. And so she has the ability to push him further away or to bring him closer in through how she lives. And so the husbands are acting one way and he's saying, listen, you follow Christ. We don't fight back. We don't play the dirty games that people play with you. Here's the second word, quiet in contrast to loud. They yell, you don't yell in return. I understand that this, there's a way that you're used to engaging, but hear me, if you want to win him, you have to do the opposite. Now, this is really hard because now some of you, you're in marriages where both of you are believers, but you are not quiet and you are not gentle. And how is that going for you? It's counterproductive. Don't worry. We're going to talk about the guys in just a little bit, okay? Just relax. And who cares what the Bible says to the dudes? It's just talking to you right now. So here's your obsession. God, what are you telling me to do? You might be single and thinking this doesn't apply to me. Well, this is pretty good dude advice all around for what it's worth. I've learned it never goes well when I fight dirty, or when they're mean, I am mean back. Because typically, here's what happens. Most people respond 2x. You yell at me, I yell 2x. They go 2x, you go 2x, then it's bad. Don't do it. doesn't work. Okay, so we see what Peter thinks. Peter's not against submission. 
The word clearly doesn't bother him at all because he uses it over and over again. What does God think? What does God think when a believing woman married to an unbelieving man doesn't play the same games and has a quiet and gentle spirit with the motivation to win them to Christ and to repentance? Here's what it says. Verse four, which is, which in God's sight is very precious. God sees this and he sees the broken heart of the woman who wants her husband to know Jesus and his heart breaks with hers and he sends his spirit and he loves this and he empowers her and he encourages her. He wants her to win. He's giving her everything she needs so she can have this internal self-control to subject herself to her husband. Now, can we just answer a question? Is this talking about husbands who physically abuse their wives? No. Ladies, if your husband is physically abusing you, that is a moment where you subject yourself ultimately to God and not to your husband and you get out of the circumstance. Some people have taken this in weird directions in that way and you just need to hear that that is not what this is talking about. This is talking about, honestly, normal marriages. That's what it's talking about. Godly character is the most strategic way to win a man's heart for life and please the heart of God. I mean, if you're a Christian, this is what you want. God, I want your will. I want you to be happy. Are you pleased with what I'm doing? If you're not, tell me. I'll shift it. I just want to bring you glory, and I want to make you happy. Ladies, submission, apparently, is the will of God, the call of God in our life, and brings great delight. And I believe God releases resources to help you, to support you, as you take this posture on, particularly and especially if you find yourself in the difficult position to be married to a man who does not love Jesus or in a man who is in a season of unrepentant sin. I think the Lord loves this posture, and he is for you, and he wants to support you. Verse 5, he goes on. He says, this is how, hupotasa, submission, this is how the holy women who helped, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves. And then he says, by hupotasuing, submitting, subjecting themselves to their own husbands. Do you do this to other people's husbands? The answer is no own husband. Peter then gives a really, really weird example. Listen to what he says. Verse six, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I want to focus on the word Lord. And this is a really interesting story from Genesis chapter 18. Uh, Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is 88 or 89 years old. And uh, they are just told, Abraham is just told by the pre-incarnate Jesus, the angel of the Lord, that your wife is going to have a baby. And she's eavesdropping in this conversation. And she laughs out loud because this is the dumbest thing she has ever heard. Look at Genesis 18, 11, and 12. Now Sarah, Abraham and Sarah were old. They were advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She's overhearing this conversation. So Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? All right. So Peter is writing First Peter. And he's trying to think of an Old Testament example of a woman married to a really, really, really frustrating husband. First thing that comes to mind is Abraham. 
Okay, so let's just take a moment. If you weren't with us in our Abraham series, um, what most evangelicals have a tendency to do is to take these few New Testament statements about Abraham's faith or how great of a duty was, and then we transfer that to every single story about Abraham in the Old Testament as if Abraham, from the moment God called him, was this amazing man of faith who never made any mistakes. Let me just summarize the life of Abraham. The dude was a jerk and a loser by and large until he was an old man. Okay, like... Like Genesis 18, can I just give you a little bit of an example of like maybe what it would have been like to be Sarah married to Abraham? Uh, first of all, they're from Mesopotamia, a place called Ur. Her name it means princess. This girl was a princess. We don't know how big her palace was, but we do know she had it well. We do know that she was married to a wealthy man. We do know that her life was okay. So then one day Abraham says, we're leaving. We're going to a different country. Where? I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. Then they figure it out. And it's the most dangerous land in the entire world, the land of Canaan, where tribal communities are competing with each other, trying to exterminate one another to vie for power. Some of the most evil, vile religious systems the world has ever known. So vile, in fact, that the Lord's only remedy was to eradicate these people from the face of the planet. That's how great of a threat they were to human civilization, that if these tribal communities were allowed to grow, they would literally destroy the whole world. And so Abraham's like, hey, why don't you come over? So they get to the promised land, and he's like, let's go to Egypt. Oh, by the way, they're going to kill me because you're really beautiful, so tell them you're my sister, and why don't you just become, I don't know, a sex slave to Pharaoh? Lie about it. And then I can get some more money, etc. Happens twice. So here's this, here's this guy who I would just say, I don't think Abraham was a great husband, and I think Peter agrees because he's trying to find a really difficult exa- example of a really difficult husband, and this is what comes to his mind. And then in the middle of this, The angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus, is tapping into her greatest pain point as a woman. She has already grieved the fact that she is not going to have children. She's way past childbearing age. And then here comes this man, we now know as Jesus, and says, you're going to have a baby. And of course, what does she do? She laughs hysterically. She thinks this is the dumbest thing she's ever heard. She's grieving. She's coming. All these old wounds are being brought back up again. And this is a moment where she could speak dishonorably to the angel, to her husband, etc. And she pulls out this word, which is a word in this culture of deep honor and respect. And so even in her grief, even as her old wounds are being repoked out, she's not taking this as an opportunity to just lash out. And this is the example that Peter pulls out. Verse 6, it goes on, it says, And you, talking to the ladies still, you're her children. If, if you do good, hupotasso, particularly in the context of unbelieving husbands or unrepentant husbands, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Do you think Sarah had a lot to fear following Abraham? This man who's trying to find himself, find God, etc., doesn't understand what's going on, is half-heartedly obeying the Lord. I mean, this is probably a really frightening thing, and there's something about just the integrity and the character of Sarah that Peter just says, you guys have to figure it out. Listen, it's, you're, in a, you're in a really hard circumstance. It's really hard. I wish it could be better. I want your husbands to know the Lord. I want them to be repentant. I want all the things that you want. But, but hear me, I don't know what the future holds for you. In the, it's very uncertain. We know persecution's rising for the people of God. We know that for some of you, it may even mean your husband's abandoning you because your affiliation with Jesus. Like, There's a lot of what-ifs bound in this culture and context to be married to a Christian if you are a Roman. 
And so they're, they're concerned. He just says, listen, this is not what the godly women of old did. Uh, the book of Proverbs chapter 31, it's one of the best verses in the Proverbs 31 woman. And here's what it says. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the future. That the woman of, the woman of God is used to being in hard circumstances. This is, this is what happens. When we look to the future, we just say, God has given me the pattern to live by. There's power in that pattern, and I will not fear. I will not fear. My defender, my protector is the Lord. He knows what he's doing. And apparently, hupotasev, subjection, deference, submission, is such a high value to him that when I'm in these really difficult contexts, particularly in my marriage, when I just want to yell and scream and control and manipulate and do all the things that I'm really good at, that there is a better way to win the man. So let's shift gears. Oh, the injustice. <laughs> Look at this. To the ladies, 135 words. To the men, 38 words. What? Are you kidding me? Anybody frustrated right now? Just, just, it actually is not as bad as, as it seems. Uh, very funny, I think. And uh, there's a little clue about why it's not as bad as it seems, and it comes from the first word of chapter 3, verse 7. Here's what it says. Likewise. Meaning. Everything we just said about the women applies to you and some. So all you ladies were like, what about the dudes? Everything I, said to you, everything I said to you applies to the guys as well. That's the irony of this. This is why we're not actually dealing in 1 Peter 3 about authority in the home. We're talking about the practicality of mutual submission in a marriage. So gentlemen, grow your godly character. Last time I checked, women are much more drawn for life to men with godly character than they are with just big muscles. Grow godly character. Kill harshness. Kill loudness. Likewise, everything I said to them, because guess what? In the same way that you're not won by harshness or loudness, neither are your wives. Ladies, can I get an amen on that one? Right? Oh, yeah, like 17 of the a bunch of you, but that's fine. Uh, I believe that you believe it. Likewise, husbands, and there's more, but here's what he says. Submission is willingly yielding to your wife's good desires as an act of service. All right, he goes on. Likewise, husbands, you can do this in two ways. Number one, daily seek to understand her. Live with your wives in an understanding way. And most guys are like, yeah, I get her. It's cool. I understand. I don't know. She likes pancakes in the morning. Yeah. Not what I'm talking about. Gentlemen, you may want to write this down or take a picture because this might be of value to you later. All right. Understand how God designed her. Open up the Bible. Read what God says about femininity. Read about what God says around the biological framing of a woman and what this means emotionally, hormonally, in terms of roles and authority. Read this. Obsess over this. Figure out the designer's intention with your wife. Figure it out. Because there's clues to joy and happiness and health. Understand her. Read the Bible. Do a study. Do anything you can. Get your head around what God thinks. Understand what God has called her to. Look at the things that she does that bless other people, that bear fruit, that are really unique, that minister to other people, and find where God is bearing fruit through her. Don't just understand the things she likes sometimes that are easy to get. Understand and watch the patterns of her life, where God is blessing her ministry, where people speak highly of her. Listen to these things, understand them, and then feed those things and continue to develop and build those. Understand what uniquely moves her heart, 
Find the things that make her the most angry because behind every ounce of anger is a positive value somewhere if you dig hard enough. But find the things that bring delight and joy to her. Understand the depths of her soul. Number four, understand, your wife is, understand what your wife is experiencing day to day. I'm still struggling with this one because I don't understand what it means to be a woman. But apparently she does. And so my job is to figure out her day-to-day experience and how different things make her feel and putting my head into her headspace with empathy. Ladies, how many of you would like to be understood? Yes, thank you. I got a hand over here, three hands, and a bunch of head nods. Right. Right. Thank you. I appreciate this. So husbands, like this is your job. Live with your wives in an understanding way. And then, yeah, let me just say a word on curiosity. I'll just put this on the screen so you can see this. Sincerely curious men with the motivation to love will eventually win the heart of their wife. Uh, I, I personally, I love curiosity. I made a decision a long time ago to be insanely curious about every single person I meet. Every single person I meet is valuable to God. God is moving in their life. There is a story. Every person has their own weirdness that I just love finding people's weirdness. Uh, every person has a unique passion that just really fires them up, something that really angers them. And I just find the image of God in people all the time. I see it. It's so interesting. I'm called the interrogator because I ask so many questions. I just love to get to know people. But I think the thing that we have to figure out as dudes is how to be insanely curious about our wives and our children. Because God is doing something in them all the time, and to figure this out is one of our disciplines. All right. Daily seek to honor her, number two. Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. All right. You're all going to get hung up on a weaker vessel, so let's just talk about that for a moment. A vessel is a container that holds something, correct? Our bodies are containers that hold something. Who is stronger, typically, a male or a female? Male. In most marriages, in a fist fight, who's going to win? The husband, because God has biologically designed men differently. Even from the very beginning, the word ish or man in Hebrew means strong. And the word isha means soft. Even physically, they're designed to be very different. And so God has made them differently. And so he calls them a weaker vessel. Your children are weaker vessels than most of you, your younger children, right? And so younger children, when weaker bodies, need a special level of honor and protection because the world is not in their favor. And so here's what happens. The stronger, the physically stronger, shows a unique kind of honor. I want to show you four ways that we honor. Number one is honor is a high disposition to somebody where you, number one, speak highly of the person in their presence. To honor somebody does not mean to obey. It means to think highly, to esteem them. And because you esteem your wife, you speak highly of her when she is around. Number two, you speak highly of her when she is not around. In her absence, the words that you say about her are highlighting the qualities of her, the godly character and qualities that you get to see in her. Number three, it's protecting her own body as your own. This is one of the ways that you honor a weaker vessel. You understand their physical experience. One of the dumb things that I learned uh, living in downtown with my wife, I had no categories for this. I'm used to walking anywhere I want, whenever I want. Apparently, when we walk by alleys, that's dangerous for most women. I didn't even know. 
And so like I learned, she taught me, uh, I never thought twice about when we're walking and there's a street over here, like I would always just put her on this side and she'd be walking by the street. I didn't even consider that I should be walking on the closest side of the street. Like, that didn't even process in my brain. There are all of these things that my wife dealt with on a regular basis, locking the doors, as we've talked about. Like, like doesn't even process to me. Like, I'm thinking, oh, an intruder comes in, like, let's go, let's do this. And she's thinking, lock all the doors, protect us. Like, very different mindsets in terms of how we view all of these things. And literally being a physically weaker person with a whole bunch of very strong men creates a very different headspace around you. And so part of honoring is trying to figure that out. It also requires people telling us because we're dumb as rocks when it comes to figuring that out. All right. Protecting her soul as, you own, as your own. Making sure that the things that are coming into her soul and protecting our building that pushing into those things, really beautiful, life-giving things to honor is a wonderful thing. And every woman wants to be honored. Now here's the deal. These husbands, they're married to unbelieving women. And what do they want more than anything else? They want their wives to know Jesus. That's what they want. Now, again, there's two categories that he's speaking to. The first category we're going to see is, is he's speaking to men married to Christian women. And then he's going to talk to men married to non-Christian women. Let's watch this. Gives him two wives. We're dumb as rocks again. We're like, tell me why. Give me why, I'll do it. Okay, good. Here's number one. Those of you married to Christian women, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. This woman, this Christian woman that you're married to, she is a daughter of God, and he is fiercely protective of his daughters. Men, you know the feeling of protection you have over your daughters? Multiply that by a gajillion, and now you know how her heavenly father, your wife's heavenly father, feels about her. You want motivation? This woman is royalty. She is a co-heir. She is going to inherit all of everything that God has for you. She inherits it as well. She is of infinite value to her father. Don't mess with the father's daughter. She's an heir. This woman is high value. She's royalty. You, you treat her with respect, period. That's, that's what he's saying. But then there's this second line that he says. He gives another, so what? Another why, sorry. And the why is really interesting. He says this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Uh, this has been interpreted in one of two ways. And I actually, I think it applies really to both. The first way is for these men married to unbelieving women. They want them to know Jesus. And apparently, as they pray for their wife's salvation, that their proneness to harsh, loud, words, demanding, pushy, it's pretty counterproductive. And what they find is their wives are less interested in the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ and the local church because of the behavior of their husbands. And that there's something about the effectiveness of their prayers, your entire pursuit, you're going before God begging for her salvation, but then you treat her like other Roman men treat their wives, and you're wondering why she's not inclined to look at Jesus a little deeper. There's another application to this, which is, by the way, when your relationship with your wife isn't okay, it just makes any kind of prayer really difficult. It's almost like God is saying, deal with that before you talk to me. Uh, there have been multiple times that my wife and I have had issues, and I just, I can't even focus on spiritual things. 
And I do think this is just the Lord's way of just saying, get this thing right. You need to learn. To, if you want to win her, I don't care if she's a believer, if she's unrepentant, or if you're just two normal, healthy, growing people. Like, if you want to win her, you need to figure out understanding and honor because something about that draws women to you. If you want to push them away, right, that's fine. But if you want to win them, there's a very different mechanism by which we do this. I want to give you three so what's. Here's the first one. You've heard this before. The power is in the pattern. There is a structure um, that if you will follow it, will be much happier for you and your family. I don't care if you're a man or if you're a woman, husband to wife, wife to husband, etc. There's a pattern, a way of behavior that God has laid out. And that if you will lean into this pattern, you will actually finally be able to tap into the power of God. Now, if you want to avoid the pattern, that's fine, but I can tell you what's going to happen if you avoid the pattern. More of what you already got. How's that going? For most people, you need to do something different. You need to stop following your pattern. You need to find God's pattern, and you need to fight to do it. Now, number two, the power is in the pattern. (laughs) Do you want God's power to be unleashed on your husband or your wife for their transformation and Christlikeness? Do you want that power? The answer for everybody is yes, you want that power. The power, it's in the pattern. You leave the pattern, you, leave the, you lose the power. In fact, what you're going to find is, is you do your own way and your own pattern, that you're going to find the opposite of what you want to happen to the, in them actually begins to occur. Can you guess what my third so what is? There's power in the pattern. So the amount of people who will say to me, uh, Michael, I did, did the thing you told me to do. I subjected. I deferred, I submitted once, right? A pattern is something that repeats over and over and over again. Doing it once will probably not undo all the years of your harshness. A life of repentance where you submit to your husband or to your wife over and over and over again, that is when the power gets activated in the pattern, repeated over and over and over again. Apparently, whatever submission is, it is of utmost value to Jesus Christ, to the Apostle Paul, and here to Peter. To the point where Peter uses this word almost more than any other word in the entire book. So whatever this, whatever this thing is, forget about all the cultural offenses. Husbands, you need to figure out in the authority structure of the home, how to submit, to subject, to defer to your wife for her good. Apparently, there's power in it. Wives, in the authority structure that God has given, you need to figure out how to subject, submit, or defer to your husbands because there is power in that. How much transformation has not happened in our homes because we've demanded our own way? Which brings me to Jesus. How could we not end there? I am looking at a bunch of unsubmissive people, and I'm looking at myself too. There we go. And I'm really, really thankful that us rebels who are slow learners, and even though the way we're doing it never actually gets the results that we want uh, over and over again, that Jesus Christ has not abandoned us. I'm looking at a bunch of people, many of whom have trusted in Jesus Christ, and you have the blood of Christ that covers all of your past sins. Yes, you're going to have to live with some of the consequences of what you've done, but even those, there is power to mitigate some of those in the repetition of the pattern as a life commitment, not to one of antagonizing and fighting and yelling and loudness and harshness and demanding, but one of mutual submission. 
There's power in this. And I'm so thankful that Jesus Christ has not only cleansed us from our past stupidity, has also committed to forgiving us by his blood for all of our future sins and errors in this way, but has also given us the Holy Spirit, who for many of us in this room is convicting us and showing us where we've fallen short of loving our husband or our wife well, but is also seeking to empower us and to give us the strength and the will to do that. All of that has been purchased for us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And some of you are here and you need Jesus. You need the power of the Spirit because you have tried everything within your power and there is no power. And so I want to commend to you Jesus Christ as your God and your Savior. I want to ask you, before you submit to any human institution or any person, would you submit your life to Jesus Christ? Would you give your life to Jesus Christ? For the first time, would you trust in him? Would you believe that Jesus Christ is God, that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead? Will you believe today that salvation is not by being good or accruing good works? It is by salvation in Christ who is good for you. Uh, If you are ready to make that decision, I'm telling you, that is where the most power begins. It is right there in trusting in Jesus. No Jesus, no Holy Spirit, no power. You want to see transformation in your marriage? It's got to start in you. You want to see transformation in your kids' lives, anywhere in yourself? It starts with coming to faith in Jesus Christ, first and foremost, getting that right with the Lord. So today, if you've never trusted in Christ, I want to invite you personally to place your faith in him. It is never too late. Today is the day to submit your entire life to Jesus. For the rest of us who have already trusted in Jesus Christ, we're about to celebrate communion in just a minute. And what I want you to do is just savor and the grace and the forgiveness that he has given you and the power that he has promised you so that when you walk out of this place, you do not have to be weak, but you have the ability to be strong in mutual submission. So if you're new with us, here's how we do communion at Village Church. If you have um, uh, trusted in Christ, I don't care what church you go to, if Jesus is your God and Savior, I want to invite you to participate in communion with us or one body in Jesus despite where you go to church. If you're not yet ready to trust in Christ, the elements are going to pass by in just a moment. Would you not partake of them? To partake is to make a proclamation out loud with your, without your words non-verbally that you are a, 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 a follower of Jesus Christ. If you're not ready to follow Christ yet, we totally understand. We have a time of silence, a time of reflection, opportunity for you to talk to God. Some of you need to repent. Some of you need to thank God. Uh, At the end of that, I'm going to pray. We're going to worship together as the elements are handed out. And if you would just hold on to the elements to the end of the song, we're going to participate and drink together as a sign of our unity in Jesus. Let's take a moment of silence before the Lord.